The U.S. Department of Defense has been on the forefront of some of the biggest technological innovations in history. At the same time, the so-called Defense Industrial Complex, DOD in cahoots with the big legacy defense contractors, the so-called Beltway Bandits, have also built some of the most expensive, bloated, and bungled technologies known to man. But now, increasingly, the Department of Defense is turning to lean, agile, and innovative software companies to build out its pipeline with dual-use technologies, acting very much like venture capitalists in some ways to find and nurture the best of the best in startup technology. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. Here to talk about how the military is on the cusp of a new wave of technological innovation are three great guests. Jeremy Nielsen is a U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant. He serves as the acting base and F-35 training manager at Edwards Air Force Base in California. Sergeant Nielsen is the primary advisor to the Edwards Air Force Base on bringing advanced technologies into the military pipeline through AFWORKS, the innovation efforts related to Air Force instructional systems design. Also joining me is Dan Borkus, is the co-founder and CEO of Hollows, a virtual reality content management system. Borkus is a former college football player, Facebook hackathon winner, and participant in Techstars Space 2020. And James Boyd is a former Special Forces soldier, Palantir engineer, and now CEO and co-founder of Aditon. That's a veteran-owned, venture-backed software company that's bringing mobile technology to the Department of Defense. Last year, Aditon launched Muster, a mobile personnel accountability system, which has been used to keep more than 8,000 DOD personnel safe throughout the epidemic. Sergeant Nielsen, Dan, James, welcome to Techtopia. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Great to have you. Sergeant Nielsen, first of all, thank you for your service to the nation. You've been driving a lot of the efforts to build a smarter, faster Air Force through the Air Force's innovation efforts called AFWORKS. Tell us a little bit about AFWORKS and what it is you are trying to do and how you're going about it. So I would say, just from my perspective, that Edwards Air Force Base in California under the Air Force Material Command, which our mission is predominantly about test on behalf of the warfighter. So we are a major command that gets the opportunity to try things out, to figure out what innovative ways that we can improve our warfighting capabilities, while Air Combat Command makes sure that we actually have a defensive posture in place. So when it comes to AFWORKS, I believe that organization is a response to the Air Force and the DOD's acknowledgement that we have some processes that could be dramatically improved by really tapping into our local community resources, our industry partners, and ensuring that we're working with the military hand in hand with these partners to ensure that we're moving forward into the next era of warfare. And that personifies itself in virtual reality or various kinds of technological advancements. But overall, I think that is the response that AFWORKS is trying to achieve. And I'm curious, as for yourself, you know, how you personally became interested in all, in this area of pushing uh, cutting-edge technology into the Air Force. Absolutely. So it's it's actually serendipitous in a way. I was security forces, uh, military police for six years when I first joined. I was deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. In Iraq, I was a heavy gunner, and in Afghanistan, I was a fire team lead where we had to deal with some riots, and I ended up uh, injuring my back, and I have three crushed discs in my spine. But from that, I retrained into being a training manager, which is how I ended up in Edwards. And a training manager's job is to make sure that 
there is an effective and robust training enterprise in place based upon the squadron you're assigned to, which for me, it was F-35 aircraft maintenance. And based upon my background downrange, I really saw a passion of how I needed to equip the maintainers with the best training applications possible because I tell every new maintainer that comes in, you guys make death machines fly so that my friends don't have to get shot at. So thank you for being good at what you do and whatever I can do to enable that, I will do that. And so from that, I, from that passion, I was able to be exposed under the test wing to this kind of innovative technology. And it was ironic because it was in a meeting that I wasn't even really supposed to be in. I was in training and my trainer's supervisor was out that day. So I happened to just be tagging along and they showed us a virtual reality headset and they were asking, you know, senior leadership, what do you guys think about that? And I was just a sergeant at the time. So it was kind of a room that I wasn't supposed to say anything in. And everyone was kind of hesitant. They weren't entirely sure. It looks kind of like a boondoggle. Maybe it's not worth it. And I, I just made the statement of what if we could do training virtually instead of sending people across the globe to conduct some of our training and we could save TDY costs, which is traveling to different locations, lodging and per diem, stuff like that. And from there, I, I got support from leadership and we've been doing testing from that point forward. And th that's why we had the opportunity through AFWorks to interact with Dan and Aditan to make sure that we're pursuing that vision. That's interesting. So what was that like for you to speak up in that room full of people where you weren't really supposed to be speaking up? I would say it was a defining moment of my, my Air Force career. So I've only been in for 11 years, but at that time I'd been in, in even less. And so you're still trying to figure out where you really fit in, into the organization and what is your role. And I've really been able to, from that moment, realize that I have an ability to be passionate about things and I'm willing to go through the drudgery of you know, working within a bureaucratic institution because we're not designed to be a startup company, but working within those parameters to have the fortitude to move forward. And I, I'm driven by the opportunity to interact with such upstanding individuals that are pursuing innovation on the industry or on the governmental side. And I was a defining moment for me. And what would you say has been like the most difficult thing for you to bring others along to your way of thinking, you know, of, you know, using technology to turn the Air Force into a, a smarter, faster uh, machine? I would say the most difficult part is realizing that every single one of us has the same end state goal, which is to live in a free democratic society that believes in liberty and regardless of our pursuit or lack thereof of interest in innovation or technology, we, we all have that dream and we all have that vision. And when you realize whoever you're interacting with, regardless of whether they're telling you yes or no, they have that underlining vision for themselves and for their families, you, you start to realize that you need to understand the way that they're seeing it because there's something of value. And that's been a really building experience for me as well. Because once you find that, you have strong allies on your side. Dan, as we were chatting in our last week, you know, the D Department of Defense has long driven this quest for technology and innovation through all kinds of ways, including through DARPA, the Defense Advanced Project Research Agency, which most people are familiar with now. What are some of those examples of technology that originated in the military and, and what's different now in the DOD's quest for advanced technologies, would you say? 
Yeah, I mean, DARPA and the military, you know, since the 1950s, uh, has been the tip of the spear of innovation uh, in our country and economy. I think some technologies that the people probably heard of or know about coming out of, out of DARPA, you know, the internet, GPS, the graphic user interface, uh, Siri, the Unix operating system, which was the backbone for uh, iOS and Android. And then what some, something people might not know is that Google was a, initially a, a project found, uh, funded by DARPA. Uh, so the military, at least pockets of the military, has always been you know, a key driver of innovation uh, for our country. Uh, I think the difference now with programs like AFWorks is a scale that it's operating on now. I think it's much more of a nationwide effort. And there's much more people involved uh, you know, throughout the military and now in industry. I think uh, programs like AFWorks and people like Jeremy have done a great job of uh, really bringing kind of the best of the best in innovation from Silicon Valley and in the technology industry into uh, the capabilities that the military is going to have access to. So I think uh, the real difference now, and you know, with programs like AFWorks is that there's just a much broader scale that I think the innovation economy is hitting the military. So tell us a little bit about Hollows, your company, and, and what it is you do and how you've been able to tap into AFWorks and working with people like Jeremy Nielsen to bring this technology into the Air Force and, and other branches of the military. Yeah, so, you know, I found this company uh, with my co-founder Tyler as a, as a defense tech company. Uh, but early on, uh, we were able to get connected with the military and, and it's provided, you know, a great, uh, a great initial customer and great initial funding uh, for our company to kind of get off the ground and give a little background on our company. Uh, we're a no-code, drag-and-drop, you know, virtual reality content uh, creation and management system that uh, gives anyone, regardless of their technical skills, the ability to rapidly create and deploy collaborative hands-on experiences. So the implication of that is that you know people like Jeremy and and and, Air, and other Air Force and DoD personnel are going to now have the power to create experiences in virtual reality without the need to uh, contract that that out to external third parties. Uh, so I think it gives the Air Force and, and the DoD in general a lot more capabilities uh, in terms of you know type of training modules and uh, scenarios they can create, and they can do that on their own, and they don't have to waste time and money contracting that out to a third party with technology like ours. So give us an example of that. Like, what can a soldier do with, with Hollows? Yeah, so, I mean, we're working with Jeremy and the Edwards Air Force Base and, and other, you know, Air Force units to work with their curriculum designers uh, to create F-35 training modules. Uh, so basically, we're able to take 3D models and, uh, you know, PowerPoint presentations that, that the Air Force has access to. Uh, we put that into a content management system, and then they're able to you know, bring that out and bring that to a virtual reality world and design that on their own, kind of a lot like creating a PowerPoint presentation. So there's no code involved and, and there's drag and drop tools that we have to make, you know, the experience really easy and really fast. It ends up saving the Air Force money and, uh, you know, I think we've had pretty good success working with Jeremy and hopefully expanding, you know, soon. That's great. Jeremy, what's it like to have something like Hollows available to the folks at the in the Air Force? Overall, I would say it's fairly exciting. I mean, to be able to show the generation that I'm managing that's coming after me that these are the directions that we're looking into and we need their feedback and we need to understand what does the future look like in the next era of warfare and how can we use these tools and to see their excitement when they want to participate in something that's as groundbreaking as this is, it's rewarding to, to be part of that kind of a team. But it's a great example of how we're trying to 
be conscientious of how we're spending money as part of a governmental enterprise to ensure that we're not losing our quality of training, but we're also being conscientious with how we're spending the deficit of that training. Yeah, and of course, AFWERKS has its equivalent in the U.S. Southern Command, which is home of the U.S. Special Forces, and that effort is called SOFTWERKS. And James Boyd, you're a former Special Forces soldier. You're a familiar name to many of our listeners. Uh, uh, you were on my podcast, When It Mattered, my leadership podcast last year. And just to give folks who don't know a little bit about you, uh, we talked about how you, you gave up a life of wealth and privilege to join the Special Forces in the wake of the 9-11 the attacks, fresh out of Stanford University. And at the time you had dual US-British citizenship and you gave up your British citizenship to join the Special Forces. So. Welcome to Tectopia, and thank you for your service. Thanks, Chitra. Tell us about Adaton and why you started it. Yeah, so Adaton, we're bringing mobile technology to the DoD, and this is something that is very much grounded on my experience as a soldier where I was out in field environments and frequently found myself as an information disadvantage. I didn't have access to all the information that you often get when you're in an office on a desktop system. Um, and then also found myself kind of cut off from the rest of the organization. The information that I needed to be able to share, it was often difficult to get that out. And in a very personal experience, I remember getting a warning of an IED attack uh, that would affect US forces and needing to be able to disseminate that information. And then struggling because we didn't actually have the tools and the means to be able to do that. And we're actually resorting to text message a lot of the times to be able to communicate that information. And so really it was built on that personal experience. And then the experience that I had at Palantir where we saw the enterprise needed data that came from the edge. And a lot of times those folks today are still disadvantaged in terms of their ability to access information and send information back to the enterprise. So we started the company in 2019 with initial funding led by initialized capital to really try and bring world-class mobile technology to the DoD. So we spent about a year, I think, Jeremy, you mentioned some of the bureaucracy and some of the challenges. We spent a year building the underlying technology stack to address the security, the compliance, the connectivity challenges that are inherent in deploying any kind of technology into, yeah, these kind of edge environments that are somewhat disadvantaged from a communications perspective, but also this highly, highly regulated environment that is the Department of Defense. And last year, we launched Muster. It's our first uh, product built on top of that technology stack, which was really geared around uh, increasing visibility for folks in the headquarters, increasing connectivity for folks who are actually out there at the edge and generating really, really rich data that can then power enterprise decisions. And so far, we've got about 22 different units using it across all four different branches, and it's had some really meaningful impact. And what role did it play during the COVID-19 pandemic? How, how has it been deployed? We rolled it out across uh, across a number of different services and a number of different use cases. And we launched in the App Store in July last year. And we've seen this used in operational environments where we've had forces who were deployed, but then having to separate and keep uh, physical and social distance for their personnel spread between different hotels and different locations, needing to be able to get daily health information as well as operational readiness information, uh, as well as just keeping the chain of command connected with the actual service members. We saw this also used during uh, reserve force mobilization exercises where there's a high risk of super spreader events. And then also during things like the holiday block leave period where the military sends its personnel back to their uh, homes so they can spend it with their families. And being able to have the chain of command reach out to service members and check in on them. And throughout the course of this, it's identified um, numerous personnel that needed psychological support and help, 
people that needed uh, assistance with logistics because their family didn't have access to food and some financial impact associated with the pandemic, and then also mitigating super spreader events. But really fundamentally, this is just about, it's making personnel accountable and it's creating data around that that gives visibility and insight to the chain of command, but then also data that can support the enterprise decisions. I wonder what it would have taken for DOD to build something similar, right? Similar to Muster or to Hollows. Uh, I'm curious to know what all of your thoughts are on on the the material difference that this kind of technology can be brought to bear compared to you know traditional methods of bringing it to to soldiers. I guess. I mean, this is a huge challenge with the existing sort of frameworks that the Department of Defense has for innovation. And I think it's something that AFWorks has done a really great job of using different procurement tools to be able to introduce innovation in these environments. But fundamentally, there's something very, very special. Uh, I think Dan mentioned this about the innovation that comes from the private sector. And this is something where you have that combination of the the values that Jeremy alluded to, the people that want to see an improved uh, strength and resilience of our national security uh, forces, but then also the combination of the profit-seeking motive of free enterprise that we have in the United States. We have some of the deepest capital markets we have some of the greatest universities and we have investors that want to say, hey, look, we're interested in opportunities in the defense sector. We want to invest in companies that are going to go bring great products into it and actually create really an ecosystem around this. And so I think that's a very, very special thing we have in the United States that is sometimes hard to recreate that in government, that combination of the the access to capital, it's the access to engineering talent, and it's also the opportunity to deploy it. Dan and Jeremy, what do you think uh, are some of the biggest obstacles as you've tried to navigate the whole process? Uh, yeah, well, I'll reiterate James's point too about opening up uh, the uh, the pipeline and and then aligning interests between uh, you know the government, military, and then private industry. In the military, at the at the prime defense contractors, you don't necessarily have a huge pool of you know advanced software developers that are working on you know artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality. Uh, so having avenues like AFWorks and the SBIR uh, program really, you know, creates a, a pipeline where, you know, the talent of Silicon Valley and of the software engineering world has a place uh, in, in, in the defense world. And it gives us an incentive to build products, de-risk our businesses, uh, getting these products off the ground and ultimately giving the military better capabilities and then giving industry a better product. So I think it's, a, it's, an, it, it's an ecosystem that feeds into itself and, and has a lot of great outcomes. Uh, I mean, the challenge I think for us always is, you know, moving fast uh, in the startup world and the technology world you know we're moving a million miles per hour on the government side they aren't necessarily moving as fast they don't have those operations in place but it is getting better and people like jeremy and AFWorks uh and, and what the dod i think is generally trying to do across the board is making it uh you know a better environment and a more welcoming ecosystem for technology companies like hollows and additin so I mean, we wish everything would, would always move faster and it appears that it is trending in, in that direction. But I mean, that's the only uh, issue that I've seen thus far is just being able to navigate, you know, the contracting world and, and align that with like the timing of the burn rates and everything that a startup has to deal with. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the procurement process, right, Jeremy, what does it take to align the Silicon Valley a speed of innovation, speed of delivery with the traditional long uh, bureaucratic procurement processes, what will it take to create a budgetary system that actually will allow these things to happen at a faster and faster rate? So that's a very interesting question, because I would suggest that, and I've had to, to learn this as well, 
but being a bureaucracy it's completely counterintuitive to the basic nature of how we're supposed to operate to be agile and be fast so overall i would say the biggest challenge being inside of the dod is that we're the easiest way i could say it is we're experiencing growing pains to be able to realize that the traditional version of what we say like this is slow this is fast uh we we need to evolve to be ready to this new level of this is at least moderate and to the to a bureaucracy that may be considered super fast but to everyone else this is relatively kind of just the way that it's supposed to work so being part of that evolution and making sure that we're helping our soldiers sailors and marines and airmen understand and guardians understand that that's what we're what we're asking of them we're asking them to help us define the future to help us understand where is your perception of where we currently are and then help us illustrate what is the direction that we're going towards so it's it's a struggle but i would say it's it's also a very rewarding opportunity to be part of that in this current era and as part of that sort of identifying and educating people about what innovation means uh to the military uh james yeah i think that's a it's a great point you make there jeremy that really there's a lot of this that is a cultural shift and it's uh changing the expectations that folks in the military have about i think what fast looks like i think sometimes it's what good looks like but i think a really important part is also it's it's that expectation from am i allowed to do something new to i must do something new and i must try to innovate and that's a really important mind shift that afworks has really started to catalyze and we've seen that starting to spread out across other organizations as well where we see even the evolution of that to the point of growing pains it's hey based off that experience with afworks what could we do differently what what other tools are available where to dan's point like it aligns with startup timelines where there's it different frameworks with uh creators and vendor demonstration agreements and end of year buy and things like that like different tools that are available to to work with the ecosystem but it it takes that spark and that spark is the actual cultural change that that Appworks has really started to create yeah james as you described it to me in your email it's sort of building what you described i thought it was really uh, apt you know a coalition of the willing uh, to make this happen uh and that seems to be something that is going to take some time to do as you know james we were both at palantir when basically took a massive lawsuit from Palantir to force the army, the U.S. Army, to loosen its grip on some of these big military contracts that were being given out to the traditional, you know, Beltway bandits. So I guess the question is, I'm curious what must have changed in the years since that lawsuit, for instance, that has led to some of these uh, interesting efforts at AFWorks and Softworks and, uh, and other innovations. What would it be? I think the DOD frequently is an organization that responds to pain uh and that's the the motivator that drives the adaptation so obviously you had I think Palantir really they set an amazing example of this is what great software actually looks like and they I think it was a very very difficult road that Palantir went through to grow into the DOD and they they blazed the trail that changed the expectations for folks and I think kind of in the wake of that and then recognizing a lot of the external pressures Jeremy I'm sure uh you're acutely conscious of this with near peer rivalries there's a sort of exigent need of hey we've seen change happen and we recognize there's this huge rivalry that's that's occurring with near peers and we need to be able to adapt and to innovate faster so i think it's sort of the combination we've got a little bit of a proof point that this is possible and then we actually have this exigent need to do so yeah jeremy what what are your thoughts on that 
I 100% agree with with James's perspective, and it's it's interesting because when, especially being part of the Air Force, when you try to explain to the airmen, you know, a lot of them join and they're like, "Well, when am I going to, you know, put camo paint on and go run in the desert and you know shoot at bad guys?" It's like, okay, your finance, like, <laughs> that's that's not what you're going to do. But with respect to that, with this cultural evolution that we're going through, I get to explain to those airmen. You are as much of a warfighter as those folks. It's not in the same way, but by you looking at your policies for finance, by you as MPF making sure that you're looking into better ways to capture personnel records, by you in maintenance or facilities, by you making sure that we're using the most advanced technology or methods and policies to ensure that we're fit to fight, all of those constituents get to directly contribute to this cultural change, which on the on the tail end of it is us addressing our ability to maintain our superiority and confidence that we can uphold the tenets of national security for our country, which, you know, being, being 30 years old this year to realize that I can contribute the majority of my life to something that will supersede me is a humbling experience. Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking at the AFWORKS website and, you know, in some ways you can barely recognize some of the terms, you know, they don't look like DOD terms. It, it sounds more like a credit card company. There's like AF Ventures and Spark and Prime. Uh, what are some of those things and, and, and are there some other success stories that have evolved from those efforts uh, in addition to Hollows and Adderton? So other than specific examples, I mean, because of course they're they're impacting the entire Air Force. I would say that the the talent management component has vast, vastly increased. We've realized where what direction we need to go in when we're speaking to our airmen and their different skill sets. We're finding the resources to ensure that they're getting the kinds of training that they need, which is where my specific career field falls into place. And then we're ensuring that we're giving them use cases that are not only relevant, but that are valuable to the direction that we're trying to go. And so by AFWORKS kind of opening that threshold, that aperture for us to kind of like what James was saying, not have to wonder, are we allowed to do this, but realize it's what we were meant to do. It, it gives us that freedom and that leeway to be part of the organizational change that we want to be part of. Yeah. And on the one hand, you have startups like uh, Hollows and Adderton, you know, competing for the next generation of DOD technology. And you also have, though, still some of the big tech giants now, like Amazon, Microsoft, Oracle, and others. They've been fighting over this $10 billion Jedi cloud computing contract, and that's been put on hold repeatedly as a sole source contract, uh, right? First, it was thought to be in Amazon's bag, then handed to Microsoft, now potentially given to multiple vendors. Dan, what are the trends you are seeing in terms of these types of bids that are out there and and how that is likely to change in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the, the DOD is going more towards joint capabilities and, and not kind of a one size fits all or, or you know, just having one vendor service a big contract like that. So so ultimately, I think that's a, that's a really good thing. And they're using IDIQ contracts uh, to facilitate that. Uh, I know with the advanced bail management system, they have dozens of companies uh, that are on that IDIQ contract now. And, and you know, as they kind of progress through that, uh, the contracting with that, you know, the best of the best technology will rise to, to the top and the DOD will be able to, you know, cherry pick and work with, you know, a joint capability of, you know, maybe a dozen companies uh, 
that are building technology for these efforts. So, so I think it's, it's a good thing. I don't think there should be one company or, or one prime contractor uh, that is the data platform or the virtual reality platform for, uh, for the, of the military. I think there's a lot of things that a lot of the companies do well. I think, you know, having a joint capability uh, ultimately, uh, I think that's a, uh, that's a better move for the, for the military to have. So, so is there a danger though that when you have these big tech companies uh, fighting over these kinds of contracts, and 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 is there a danger that they are likely to become the next tier of Beltway Bandits, uh, even the Palantirs? You know, as as tech companies are no longer startups and they get bigger and bigger uh, and build in their own bureaucracies, what are what are some of the dangers? Would you say of becoming more part of the system and slowing down rather than constantly being on the cutting edge? That's a good question. Uh, I think it's as, as long as it's always competitive and the military is selecting kind of the best in class, whether that's coming from a, a defense prime contractor, or a huge tech company or a startup. I think if there's competition there, that will always be healthy. Uh, so, so I don't see you know it as a problem if Microsoft or Amazon is becoming more embedded with uh, DOD contracting. And, and DOD contracting only represents probably a fraction of their revenue. So, so I don't see that, you know, being too big of, of an issue for the big tech companies. But I, I think, you know, the DOD needs to, to, to be working more with companies like Palantir that, you know, are next generation technology companies. And, and ultimately, if there's competition there, I think that will kind of take care of itself uh, in terms of, you know, not having one or two or three kind of big players control the whole contracting ecosystem. So, so as long as there's fair and open competition, I don't see that being a near-term problem. James? Yeah, I think that the competition's a really important part of that. And I think that certainly some questions are coming up around supply chain security in this day and age where the DOD is thinking about how do I make sure I have a diversified portfolio of vendors that can provide different capabilities. And I, I think the DOD is also starting to think more in terms of relationships than transactions where they're trying to build up strategic partnerships to be able to, to bring these national level capabilities to bear. And, and certainly that demands uh, scale to be able to do that. I think something that's very, very thoughtful that's, that's starting to happen is a lot more thought about interoperability, integration, the expectation that data is uh, able to be pulled out of systems. And this is sort of a next generation view of this, which is that if you're gonna provide a capability to the Department of Defense, that data must be exclusively owned by the Department of Defense. And that data, you should be able to pull it out of the system. You should be able to put it into an analytics system or, or whatever else the Department of Defense is, is doing with that data. It can't be locked into it. And I think that the new contracts uh, are really structured in a way to try and make sure that, hey, we're not going to get the same kind of vendor lock-in. And likewise, when it comes to things like source code and the ability to modify capabilities, the DoD wants to make sure, hey, I'm not going to be stuck. If there's a bug, I want to be able to fix it. And so I think the introduction of far greater products into this space is really a very healthy thing where we've gone from a world of um, kind of people sitting in seats writing custom bespoke code under large services contracts to like now we actually have product capabilities that are delivered far faster and at far, far lower expense to the taxpayer. But then with the expectation that we control the data and we can actually make modifications to it. And I think kind of a critical component to this is making sure that the people doing the procurement are far closer to the actual end users of the systems because that's where you actually get the users saying, hey, this is the capability that we need. And it's really, it's demand that's then driving the supply chain to, to fill those capabilities, as opposed to kind of the older way where a lot of this was requirements that are drafted by people, many echelons removed from the actual end users. And then they would go out and they would buy custom bespoke capabilities. So 
I think to, to that end, as we, we see much larger participants in the Department of Defense, it's the structure of these contracts that really matters, where it's like, hey, are we putting the requirements in place to make sure that there's no vendor lock-in, that we have the interoperability? And are we actually buying the technologies in a way where the end user has a real say? And end users like Jeremy that actually have a real say in what technologies are actually deployed. That's really interesting. And and on the other hand, is there a question of if it's dual use technology and it's being used both in the military and in the, and in industry uh, and commercially to make sure that uh, you know highly sensitive technology doesn't uh, uh, leak out of the the military and potentially to uh, people who shouldn't have access to it. For sure, and that aligns with a lot of uh, a lot of efforts right now with the trusted capital marketplace in the Department of Defense. A lot of the new screening that happens in contracts to try and understand when they're purchasing a technology, who actually owns the company that provides that technology. And then you start scratching beneath the surface, and you're looking at okay, who are the people that have invested in that company, and who are the people that provided them dollars? And it's a very very difficult thing to do. And I think it's a really it's another step which is critical in this process, which is to catalyze that domestic uh innovation ecosystem on the private sector which is why it's so important for the government to think empathetically about the industry partners and make sure that, hey look we got to provide a terrific marketplace for companies to build and sell technologies to the department of defense so that we have that as a domestic asset in the united states and also in terms of internal culture and software companies you've seen google for instance there have been walkouts and things from people from employees who didn't want them to be involved in AI technology and things like that. Um, and of course, a lot of investors in the past have sort of uh, turned their noses down at companies that want to do business with the US government, including at one time, uh, investors who didn't want to fund Palantir and, and companies like Palantir. So it seems like even in Silicon Valley and in the technology space, there ha there has to be a, a quite a bit of a cultural shift, just like there is a shift in the in the US military. Yeah, I think this is something that the DOD can can really do a lot here. And I would be interested to hear Jeremy's thoughts, but I think for for folks in Silicon Valley, you're right. There's a cultural alienation that uh, when you look at folks that went to go and serve in the military after the 9-11, the vast majority of those folks didn't actually come from the coasts. It came from the middle of the country. And I think that reflects a broader sort of political demographic in the, the country as well. But I think when it comes to the politicization of technology and, uh, and things like that, I mean, I look at when we see that there's several dozen service members who've had PTSD and psychological issues identified using our software, I mean, who's not going to invest in that? And so I think this is something where the DOD can do two things. One is actually talk about what are the systems to so those finance folks, what are the systems the finance folks are using? And where is there actually an opportunity for the Valley to bring in great technology to improve that? And then likewise, I think it's also a question of uh, explaining to the Valley, hey, look, the DOD is filled with acronyms and filled with regulation, and it doesn't have to be that scary. This is what we as the government can do to actually help you as the, the private, private sector or help you as venture capital understand how to do business with the Department of Defense. And it's something we're trying hard to do is actually really explain to our existing investors, like, hey, look, this is how the DOD works. This is how government contracting works. And, and these are the kind of capabilities that we're delivering. Because the more we can share that knowledge and share that perspective, the bigger the pipeline, the bigger the ecosystem. Jeremy? Yeah, I, I agree with James's perspective. And that's where I think those kind of interactions and those relationships that we're forming between the military members and industry, it's an opportunity for us to kind of take continuity of where are we currently at? 
Where are the things that make us different? Where are the things that we can converge on? And then making sure that we're doing everything in our power to equip our future airmen leaders or military leaders with the ability to have that in their forethought when they're making decisions. And that may or may not be something that's been considered up to this point. So the current leadership is trying to do everything we can to enable them to get that kind of exposure, regardless of where they come from, you know, they have the ability to understand those aspects of the organization and then make conscientious, critical thinking decisions that contribute to the betterment of that organization's future. Dan? Uh, yeah, no, I think it comes down to education. I think uh, some of these companies in Silicon Valley and some of these people that uh, you know, don't want to do work with the U.S. military. If they actually knew what was going on, you know, kind of in, you know, with AFWorks at DARPA uh, through this, these SBIR programs. Uh, and then, you know, just knowing that the technology that they're using right now, a lot of it was developed, you know, in military research labs. So I think if, uh, you know, we, the people are currently in the ecosystem, the military, the startups and the technology companies that are working with the military right now. I think if we do, you know, a better job of being more inclusive and, and kind of explaining exactly what we do do, I think, you know, if people in Silicon Valley or people who might not be, you know, for uh, working with the government or military organizations found out what it was actually like and, and how it has improved, you know, technology, how it's been the tip of, tip of the spear and, and all that, they might be more willing to, you know, consider working with the, with the military and uh, government if they knew the role that it played uh, in the tech ecosystem. So I think if, you know, more people in Silicon Valley had more conversations with people like Jeremy, I think there'd be a lot more collaboration between Silicon Valley uh, and the defense uh, contracting world. Interesting. And so in closing, I, I want to hear from each of you, uh, Dan, maybe starting with you on what you see your vision for Hollows uh, in terms of how you would like for it to be deployed in the Air Force and in the military in coming years and the value that it can bring uh, to uh, to the troops. Yeah, I mean, we want Hollows to be something uh, where uh, we're, we're providing virtual reality technology to the military and then we're empowering airmen and other military personnel to not just uh, be passive users, you know, in virtual or augmented reality, but them to have creative power and to be able to, you know, uh, really be able to create experiences and, and, and use virtual reality uh, as a tool to enhance training operations and anything that the military might need to visualize in a, in a, in a 3D way. So we hope that we'll you know, be able to help mitigate traveling costs. Uh, you know, not have, you know, the Air Force need to train with real parts before they're not ready, uh, sometimes breaking them and costing money. So, I mean, we're here, I think, along with Additon and a lot of other, you know, technology companies uh, to streamline military operations and then hopefully bring, bring the best, uh, you know, that's available in the technology world uh, and make it a capability that the military has access to. So, our goal is, you know, we're working with Jeremy the Edwards Air Force Base right now, but we want, definitely want to expand and, and give our tool, make sure the house is available to any airmen or military personnel that, that might need it. And then, you know, eventually we want to scale into, you know, enterprise and the consumer markets as well. James, what is your vision for Additon and for Muster? I mean, I think starting at a, a very kind of grassroots level, I, we have a lot of users in the National Guard. And so what I want is when, when you're that, that private or that corporal or that sergeant in the National Guard and you're using muster, you feel like you have access to the information that you need. You feel like you can push the information back to your chain of command that you need. But, but more importantly, that you have this highly empathetic, high quality experience and that you as an end user of muster are saying, hey, you know what? 
I am actually allowed to have nice things and I actually should have good technology. And then for the chain of command, they see that and they see the data that comes back and they feel this fabric of trust where they say, I can reach out and I can communicate with my people. And you know what? We can do great things with mobile technology. What are the other things we could do with mobile technology? And then even expand that a little bit further and say, hey, look, what about things we could be doing with materials or things we could be doing with AR, VR training like Polos? And actually saying, hey, what are the other things that we could bring uh, into our unit that help us innovate, do things more effectively? And then on the, the, the private sector side is actually having uh, investors say, hey, you know what? There's actually these terrific opportunities in the Department of Defense. We can have a huge impact on national security and we can invest in engineers. We can invest in entrepreneurs and then start to incentivize other entrepreneurs to say, you know what? I've got a great idea. I think this might work with the DOD. Let me go talk to somebody like Jeremy. Is this a thing that actually solves a problem for you? And maybe we can start some more businesses here and actually create a really strong ecosystem out of it. And how long do you think it'll take to get there? I mean, I think it's happening already. Like we've seen this where we have uh, units that reach out to us proactively and say, hey, I got to have this thing. And then there's word of mouth spread. And then we see we see colonels and generals referring it to other ones saying, hey, you got to check this thing out. And our investors, we certainly see they're learning about this and, and they're queued in on this and they're saying, hey, there's actually something to this. And so our hope is that over the next few years, we really see a lot more companies start a lot more businesses in the defense sector. Yeah, Palantir blaze, blaze a trail for all this. And there's a lot of great companies coming out, uh, Addison, Bluestack, Andural, Hollows. So I think you know people have seen Palantir be successful in IPO. And, and I think that's gonna be a, a big trend that continues. Interesting. Uh, and Jeremy, you know, you talked about how you spoke up in that meeting when nobody else would speak up. And uh, what's it like now? Do you do you feel like you are being heard when you are fighting for this type of technology to be available to everybody? I want to say yes, but in addition to that, I think what I've realized is the the personification of me being heard is actually part of a unified message of us as a community trying to contribute to its self-sustainment and its betterment. Whether you're part of private sector or DOD, you're trying to contribute to an organization that has a foundational belief in our democratic system. And we're all contributing to that. And whether it be my voice or someone else's voice or all the other innovators out there, it's from the stance that we all have the same underlining driver, which is we, we believe in our country and we want to ensure that it continues to be as great as it possibly can be. Well, and on that closing note, uh, thank you very much, Jeremy, Dan, James, for joining me on Techtopia and for this fascinating conversation about innovation in the military. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chitra. Thanks, Chitra. U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant Jeremy Nielsen serves as the acting base and F-35 training manager at Edwards Air Force Base in California. He's the primary advisor to Edwards Air Force Base on bringing advanced technologies into the military pipeline for AFWERX, the innovation efforts related to Air Force instructional systems design. As a senior enlisted advisor, Sergeant Nielsen also supports the advancement of an innovation mindset for the airmen he supervises coaching ownership of the dynamically evolving era of warfare and preparing the future leaders to be critical thinkers, capable and contentious contributors to the defense of the nation.
Dan Borkus is the co-founder and CEO of Hollows, a virtual reality content management system. Borkus is a former college football player, Facebook hackathon winner, and tech star Space 2020 participant. And my friend James Boyd is a former Special Forces soldier, Palantir engineer, and now CEO and co-founder of Additon, a veteran-owned venture-backed software company that's bringing mobile technology to the Department of Defense. Last year, Aditin launched Muster, their mobile personnel accountability system, which has been used to keep more than 8,000 DOD personnel safe throughout the pandemic. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.